Hey everyone, this is James White here at the Everyday Ministry Podcast. We know that it's been several months since we've released a new episode, but we are hoping to start back releasing new episodes and fresh content at the start of next year. Until then, we are planning on releasing a sermon that I have preached over this last year at my local church, either every other week or every week. We hope that these sermons are beneficial to you. chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Now, as you're turning there, I really just wanted to reflect on a, uh, really just an open up with it this morning, is a TV show that I really enjoyed. Uh, and the reason why I want to talk about this, not about the TV show itself, though I'm going to get there in just a second, but it's because of this reality, is that it doesn't happen much. This reality that I'm going to talk about does not happen much, and it's really due to streaming services such as Netflix and Hulu and Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's really this reality. And I remember thinking back as I was a kid and watching TV shows growing up on television. Um, I would watch these shows week by week, waiting for the story to unfold. That you would watch it and then you didn't have this, this self-gratification of clicking next and watching the next episode instantly. Uh, and there was one particular show that, that really comes to mind when I thought about this. And it was this show, Caleb really likes the show. Me and him have some disagreements about it. But it's the show called Lost. And the, the show Lost is a fantastic show. I really encourage you to watch it. Uh, and we have this different opinion. He loves the way it ended. I personally think it was one of the worst endings ever in a TV history. Uh, but regardless, that's not what's important. What's important is when we ha- watch a show like this, it would, it would cause you to sit at the edge of your seat, uh, your seat due to this mysterious nature of each episode and season. And it truly is the best show for that. It would really have you asking your question, what just happened? And really, what can they do next? You see, the reason why this is so important is because they would end these shows and end these episodes on these best cliffhangers, causing you to wonder those exact questions. See, the author of Ruth is doing the exact same thing. If you remember back to last week, I, I was not able to be here. I was preaching at a church in Fed, but I was able to listen to the recording. Thankfully for apps and things of that such, I was able to listen to the recording and when I, when I listen to it, what I really notice is this specific, specific example of the way the service ended last week and the scripture ended last week. Ruth, Ruth by way of instruction of her mother-in-law, goes on the offensive and pursues Boaz to hear these words, I am a redeemer, yet a redeemer nearer than I. I mean, can you really hear, I mean, to hear those words, after humbling oneself, laying at Boaz's feet, and to going against all cultural norms to express a pre-proposal per se, would have been a gut punch to some extent. 
Yet she is sent away with this great promise and down payment expressing Boaz's intent to do whatever it took to ensure that she was redeemed by the one that God would have for her. But it left us as as the uh, current audience and the original audience wondering what just happened and what is going to happen next. See, so often we don't approach books of the Bible that way, but that's really what the author is trying to to express to you. It's just the the story that is going on that is being woven by God in the life of Ruth and Boaz. So as we ended last week's sermon, unless you read ahead, you were probably wondering what was going to happen next. Would Ruth marry this other redeemer or would she marry Boaz? Would she be redeemed by the one that she loves or by this mysterious man that she's never met? This morning's sermon is not going to end much different. It's going to end by you being on the seat of your pants wondering what is going to happen next. And so, and as we continue through the story of Boaz... And his pursuit and redemption of Ruth, let us not lose sight of this big detail that this is just a shadow of the pursuit and redemption of God's people by the one true Redeemer. So Boaz is an example of the greater and more perfect Redeemer that was to come. Now let's turn our attention to Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Verse 5, then Boaz said, The day you buy the field, the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in formal times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to, to, to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and that all that belongs to Shilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses, my 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you act wonderfully, worthily in Ephrathite and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore into Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come now, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the shadow of Ruth and of Boaz that points to Christ and to our redemption in him. God, as we approach your word more in depth, God, allow the things exposed to be of your desire, not of mine, God, but allow the application be of you, not of our own. And Father, as we approach your word, allow us to approach it with an open heart and open mind. God, take me and hide me behind it. In your son's holy name, amen. Before we dive into verse 1, I really want to look at, um, if we would put that next slide up, uh, really this phrase you've heard me say already, and you're going to hear me say throughout the sermon, and it's this idea of shadows of the true Redeemer. Um, and it, it's really a simple phrase, and it's really not that hard to understand, but I wanted to make sure you understood where I was going with, with this, and it's that Boaz is a picture, or I'm going to use shadow, for the true Redeemer that was to come. Shadow meaning that he was an image of a Redeemer, but not the true and ultimate Redeemer. Or to simply put it, he was pointing to Christ that was to come. And the reality is that as we look at Boaz, it's this individual that was this shadow or this individual pointing to the Redeemer that was to come. We too are shadows of the true Redeemer. We too are to be shadows of Christ. We too are to point back to Jesus and declare the redemption that is found in Him. And as we do that, my prayer and my hope is that as we approach God's Word in Ruth chapter 4, that we would see the shadows of true redeemers pursue holiness, self-sacrifice, and community. I'm going to come to those later. You don't have to write them down yet. But what we're going to see is that he is these true these shadows of the true redeemer. We pursue holiness, self-sacrifice, and community. And why that's important is as I started off as we sang that last song together, this is truly the way that we worship and bring glory to God. And so as we approach it this morning, the first thing we're going to see is that Shadows of the true Redeemer pursue holiness. Shadows of the true Redeemer pursue holiness. Verses 1 and 2. As we approach it, we first see this word now. Though we don't know this exact moment in which Boaz leaves to go to the gate, this word now would indicate that there is no, there is no uh, waiting around. There is no lackadaisical nature to Boaz is approaching to redeeming Ruth. Rather, Boaz is quickly getting up and going to the destination that he would find the other redeemer as well as these elders that would be necessary to propitiate the name of the descendant of the deceased. And so we see this word now. So put in context, Ruth and Ruth and Boaz just had this encounter in the threshing room floor. He sends her away. And after sending her away, he, he quickly prepares himself and he goes to where it says, Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there. So Boaz, after leading Ruth away, he gets up in the, the bride of the morning and he goes and he sits down at the gate of the city. This wouldn't seem as if he was trying to pursue anyone. This wouldn't seem as he was trying to redeem her or being quick about it. 
But to put it in the right context, what we would rightly understand is that the word gate here is probably one of the most significant things about the first few verses in Ruth chapter 4. Because the gate is declaring why he is sitting here. See, the gate of the city was this big opening spot where the rest of the city would be small, narrow pathways throughout the entire town. And so the gate of the city would be where merchants would set up their tents, where beggars would lay, where paths where farmers would take to their fields and the threshing floor. It's where civil and legal matters would be determined. Think of it much like a downtown in a traditional city. For example, I was thinking about the town I live in, which is Vernon. You go to the city square and you find food and you find uh, vendors and hairstylists and newspapers. You find a courthouse. And if you just go a few blocks down the road, you would find a grocery store, a bank, a post office, a drugstore, a hardware store, etc. And so this is this this is the, the heart of the city. This gate is where everybody went and is where everything went down in the city itself. And so Boaz, in pursuit of Ruth, goes to the place, the only place that he would be confident enough to find the Redeemer that he was looking for. And that's what we see is exactly what happens. But in this, we see this intentional pursuit to find the first Redeemer to save and to redeem Ruth. But if you go on with me, it says, The Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by, and Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. His plan worked. To no surprise, his plan worked. This Redeemer pops his head up. He's walking through the town, probably going to his field to work or to oversee the working of his servants. Though it's interesting, though, we, when we see Boaz referring to this man, he uses this word friend as the ESV translates, but it would also be rightly translated as Mr. So-and-so. See, but Boaz isn't like myself. See, if you don't know this about me, you're going to learn today. I am terrible with names. I am absolutely terrible with names. The worst quality a pastor can have is probably a terrible explanation of Scripture. And then after that is being terrible with names. But I am. I am absolutely horrible with names. That's not why Boaz is calling him friend. That's not why Boaz is saying Mr. So-and-so. See, the author intently left this detail out. We don't really know why. Most likely to preserve the uh, integrity of this family's heritage so that he would not go down as the individual that was not a part of God's uh, sovereign redemptive plan. We don't really know why he does this. But I'm gonna, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I'm probably going to refer to this guy as Mr. So-and-so. That we don't, we don't get confused. But Mr. So-and-so, he finds this Mr. So-and-so. He finds this friend or this bud or whatever uh, term you would use when you don't know somebody's name. He finds this individual and he says, Mr. So-and-so, turn aside. Friend, turn aside. Now what's so significant is that he turns aside. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Though. It goes on, it says, Then when he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz and Mr. So-and-so are sitting in this central location. And I I just imagine it unfolding this way. They're sitting in this location and these 10 elders are walking around, probably one at a time. They're probably not grouped together. And he starts pulling these elders out of the crowd and he gets them to sit down one by one. Though we would rightly understand that there would have been more than 10 elders in the city. It would probably have been more about 70 to 75 elders in Bethlehem at this time. But apparently 10 was just the amount of numbers uh, that he had to have for a transaction such as this. And so Boaz not only gets Mr. So-and-so to sit down, but he also gets 10 other individuals to sit down. 
Why is that significant? It, it implies this respect that the Redeemer and these elders had for Boaz. Though it could speak to his position in the society, but it would rightly define the type of man that he was. Boaz was an upright man, and we see that even more clearly in these next verses. But we've seen that so far already. In a moment where Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth, rather than doing that, he actually sends a gift home with her, promising that he would pursue her. We see it even in the fields where he provide, he tells his servants to drop extra food so that she could pick it up and feed her family. Boaz is an upright man, and we see that displayed in their willingness to stop and the busyness of the day and to listen to what Boaz might would have to say to them. So when you continue in 3 through 4, we really see this character of Boaz unfold even more. Since so then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting and the presence of the elder of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you would not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz is sitting down, Mr. So-and-so, the Redeemer, and he's laying out what's going on. He's saying, look, Naomi has come back from the land of our enemy, essentially, and she has this plot of land, and she is selling this plot of land. And this was our relative Elimelech's land, and she is selling it. And if you purchase it, if you want this inheritance, then make it known to the elders around us so that it would be yours. But if not, let me know so that I could redeem it for myself. Though we, we don't see, he goes into all the details yet. We don't know why. Because in just a moment, you're going to see that he then brings up Ruth. We don't know why he goes into these details, doesn't go into these details yet. Maybe he's interrupted by uh, this other Redeemer. Maybe he's just trying to lay out everything about it. But what we see is the Redeemer response. And he simply says, I will redeem it. See, this is that moment in, in Lost or whatever your TV show was, that this is the moment where it would just cut off. This is the moment as a, as a reader that we should pay attention to what's going on here. Because this is the moment where that gut feeling that you thought the good aspect was going to happen in the, the main characters of the story, you just realize it's not going to happen. This is the moment, this is the pivotal moment into the entire scene to where we would then assume that maybe Boaz isn't the Redeemer for Ruth. In a moment, we're going to explore why would Boaz even take this approach? Boaz loves Ruth. Ruth loves him. He's pursuing her. Why would he even go about it this way? Let's continue, though. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy, he's saying, look, I'm continuing. This, there's more to the situation than just land. He says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi. You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz says, friend, Mr. So-and-so, that's not all of the story. It's not everything that's going on here. You don't only get this land. And the, the reality is the reason why he would redeem the land is because this would be an easy investment for him. He would get nothing but land in this elderly, older woman that would be easy to provide for for just a few years and it would make a good return for him and his family. 
So he rightly says, I will redeem it. I'm going to get this land. It's like if you won a, a sum of money tomorrow, you would gladly take it. Though there may be some taxes you would have to pay or there may be some things you would have to do that would legality purposes that would make it difficult, but it would be worth it, right? That's why this other redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, says, I will redeem it. But Boaz then tells him, but that's not all. There's this individual named Ruth, this Moabite, that is also the widow of the dead. So not only is she a Moabite, but he's a widow. She's a widow. So she's a double whammy here that she's got two negative things going for her. But the reality, the reason why he would declare that Ruth the Moabite, because this was the people, this is what the people knew her as. That was Ruth the Moabite. That's what, when they saw her in town, they're like, that's Ruth the Moabite. And, and, and so that's how he's declaring her here. But to under, so that the Redeemer would understand her significance, he says, the widow of the dead. See that if he purchased the land, he would also have to not only redeem the land, but he would have to redeem Ruth. So how does he respond? Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. See that quick and easy investment, that, that easy return just changed. This is a risky investment now. This is a risky situation. And so what we see the Redeemer saying, though there is this seemingly that he's unwilling to do this, there's, a, there's more to it than that. He's just not able to. But this would cause us to ask some questions. Why? Why can he not redeem this? Why would this affect his inheritance? Is it because she's a Moabite? Is it because she's a widow? What's going on with the story? The reality, though, when I approached it, I was thinking maybe it's because she's a Moabite and would change something in his inheritance. But that's not the case. It's very simple why he could not marry Ruth or that he could not redeem Ruth. It's because if he got this land and he redeemed Ruth, then if Ruth were to marry someone else or even marry him and have a child by him, then that person would then be an heir of the land of Elimelech. And so this investment that was just now an easy decision to make turned into something that he could just simply not afford. He could not handle this on his own ability. It would question the inheritance of his family. Elimelech is looking out for number one, not looking out for Ruth or Naomi, which was a shame and really a, a disgrace to the family. And so what we see here isn't that he's unwilling, though I would argue that he's probably unwilling, because it would be the same investment that, that Boaz would take upon himself. But he's simply saying, I just can't do this, Boaz. I cannot redeem them and maintain my own family. So, this brings us back to this question, is why did Boaz go about it this way? Boaz clearly has this affection for Ruth. And isn't it just as clear that she has this similar feelings? This relationship is uh, abundantly more than this legal transaction between Boaz and Ruth. So wouldn't we have just been just as satisfied if the story ended in verse 3 with the marriage of Ruth and Boaz and that he took it upon himself to marry her and to redeem her without going about it the correct way? And quite honestly, if this was any Nicholas Sparks or any Hallmark movie, this is what would have happened and we would have championed it. 
that he pursued the woman he loved above all else. So why would Boaz go through all of this trouble to risk not being able to marry the one that he loved? I mean, come on, when you get to the middle part of the story, we actually see that there's this moment where it doesn't appear that he's going to marry her. So why would he do this? Because Boaz is an upright and honest man that is pursuing integrity and holiness above his own heartly desires. And as we understand that, doesn't that make the application even clearer for us? Is that we rightly should know and pursue holiness and integrity rather than the desires of our flesh and of our hearts? As fellow shadows of the true Redeemer, shouldn't we likewise pursue holiness rather than responding to our circumstances in the way that the world or how our hearts would lead us to? Should we not have integrity at our work? in the way that we pursue and serve our bosses, or the way that we run our companies? Should we not rightly have integrity in the way in that we approach our schoolwork? Or that in the relationships that we have, or in our finances, would we rightly not be as shadows of the true Redeemer? Would we rightly not consider approaching it with integrity? What about pursuing holiness? That's what we see here. If he were to marry Ruth in this manner, then their marriage would be set on grounds of unholiness. So Boaz, being the right man he was, pursues her correctly. Should we not pursue holiness in the same way? Should we not spend ample amount of time in prayer and in the Word of God so that holiness would just be a part of who we are, that He would empower us to live out these realities? Will we not seek our worth in Christ rather than responding to the the likes and the responses we get on social media? Would we not avoid the gossip of the town or slay the addictions we have or stop visiting those specific sites on our phones or computers or stop endlessly watching the television? Will we not then pursue and be the husbands and the wives and the, the mothers and the fathers that we're called to be? See, the reality is, as shadows of the true Redeemer, just like Boaz, we are to seek holiness and integrity. It would have been so easy, so easy for Boaz in the moment of the threshing floor to pursue Ruth in the wrong way. But rather, we see that he quickly sends her away, then he quickly goes to the town, and he lays out everything that is going on so that he could approach her in a worthy way, not because, not only because he loved Ruth, but because he loved God and saw God's holiness above all else. And so being holy in the sight of God was more worthy to him than the marriage that he would obtain in Ruth. The second thing we're going to see is that as shadows of the true Redeemer, we also should pre- pursue Self-sacrifice. Shadows of the true Redeemer, we pursue self-sacrifice. Verse 7 starts off by saying, Now this was the custom of the former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and the exchanging 
to confirm the transaction to one, drew off his sandal and gave it to another. And this way was the manner of attesting in Israel. Makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense why this is the case. And the reality is, I, I'm, I would beg to, to say that it would make no sense to the original audience either. Because that's why the author is putting this here. He's explaining this is a way of the past. Don't know why they did it this way, but this is the way they did it. They did it. And I mean, let, I mean, let's look at it on a very practical level. Would this mean that Boaz would have to keep this shoe forever? To prove that he was the true redeemer of the land and Ruth. Would, would this redeemer be able to come back to Boaz later and say, look, you don't have that shoe no more. This is my land. Would he just place that up on a shelf as a trophy in his home saying, I won you, Ruth. What, what's going on with this shoe? How was it even fair that Mr. So-and-so, this redeemer, not only does not get this land, but now he has to go to work with one less shoe? I mean, really, there's a lot going on here, and we really just don't understand it. Or maybe Boaz just gave the shoe back after it was all said and done, and it was just this representation of the transaction that was just made. Regardless of what's going on here, it doesn't matter. But what I find so significant about this, and you may not get where I'm going with this, that's okay, because I didn't get it at first, is that this is just a physical representation of the transaction that was just made. And the reality is we have these same things in our lives today. On a very practical level, 20, 30 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, you would, you would exchange a handshake and that would be enough. Now we would do the same thing with signed contracts. But on a, on a spiritual level, we have the same things in our lives. Think about baptism and think about Lord's Supper. These two are physical representations of the transaction that Christ made on our behalf so that we would be redeemed. And so the reality, though it doesn't matter what the shoe represents, what it does represent to us is the way that we would now express that God has redeemed us. That's why we were baptized and that's why we take the Lord's Supper because it's this physical representation of the redemption that we have found in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what's going on with this shoe or what happened to it after they've left the city square or the gate, we should rightly understand that we have these same things in our life and they were very beautiful things. And the world around us just doesn't understand them either. It goes on though. So, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. The author, uh, in, in verse 7, this is really this cliffhanger moment. This is that moment just to have a pause for you could, to soak in what just happened. That the hero just won the girl. The, the, the pursuit of holiness led the, the, the reward of holiness this verse 7 not only treats us as an explanation of what's about to happen, but it's this moment to pause and breathe and take in. He's getting Ruth. He's redeeming her. And verse 8 just draws our attention back to what the Redeemer or Mr. So-and-so had already said. And he says, look, it is yours. I can't do anything with it. Buy it for yourself. And then he took off his shoe. Verse 9, there was when it gets... Really important for us. Then Boaz said to the elder, elders and the people, You are my witnesses the day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and that belong to Shelon or Melon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, have bought to be my wife. There's a lot of terms used here. 
The way he refers to Elimelech and the two sons that he had that were also deceased, the two terms that he uses for Ruth. Boaz is being clear and direct with what's going on here. This is a legal declaration of what he was buying from Naomi. And so that it seems cut and dry. And the reality is there. Boaz's language and his wording is abundantly clear and direct. He's saying it so there would be no misunderstanding that he was purchasing and redeeming from Naomi the land and every possession there was as well as Ruth for his wife. So this legal transaction just turned into an introduction or an announcement of a wedding to come. So he purchases land and possessions. He purchases Ruth, the Moabite, the widow. This is explaining what he's doing. But what we still haven't got to is why does he want Ruth? Why does he want the land? We know that Ruth is this upright woman that seeks after the Lord and wants to be a part of God's people and and truly is just devoted to her mother-in-law. And she's a stout woman. She can carry 80 pounds of wheat by herself to town. She is a hardworking woman that is providing for her family. So why not want her? But what I would argue is that this is more than just love that he has for Ruth. And that's the beautiful thing that we should notice. He goes on and he says to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of the native people, uh, native place. You are a witness today to perpetuate the name of the dead. Though this isn't his sole motivation, though there was this love and this compassion towards Ruth, We see that his motivation is selfless. His desire in this marriage is more than about what he is going to obtain from Ruth and the glory of marriage itself. Boaz's approach to marriage is selfless because what he's doing is sacrificing himself in such a way that he would redeem the name of his family member that was dead in the land of the enemy that he would redeem the name of this individual rather than it being cut off and cast away in the history of their people. This is the reality, and it's very simple, and it's though it's not in our context, it's very, very simple, is that he's doing this for the honor of Elimelech. And so that Elimelech would be honorable to the people around him. If not, he would just be lost in history. But what I really want us to see in this before we move any further, before we even look at Boaz anymore and his self-sacrifice, is that this is what Christ has done for us. That we were cut off from the people of God, that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were dead in sin, we were in the land of the enemy, and what He did was He redeemed us and brought us back into the land of God's people. That He has redeemed and saved us through the redemption that is offered through Christ Jesus that we were lost sinners away from God due to our sin, rejecting and rebelling against Him. He, being perfect and holy, was going to pour His wrath out upon us and we would be lost in an eternity forever and forevermore. But God has redeemed those who trust in Him. So the story of the redemption of of Ruth by Boaz is such the story of our redemption of Christ and Jesus. 
So before we look at Boaz any farther, let's first look at the fact that God has redeemed us. Or maybe he hasn't yet. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe he's speaking to you now. My prayer would be that you respond accordingly to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you would surrender and give it up all for him. But let's continue to look at Boaz for just a moment. See, Boaz is not pursuing marriage so that he would be benefited by it. Though he most definitely was, Ruth was an upright woman that sought after the Lord and was providing for her family in the way that she could. Rather, Boaz is approaching this marriage in such a self-sacrificial way to redeem the name of Elimelech. Isn't there such a cut way, cut and dry way that we can apply this? Is that Boaz's approach to marriage was not about himself. Alistair Begg puts it this way. Since I mean most people that get married, Boaz, are only getting married because they're just as consumed with the possibility of getting what they can get from the individual upon whom they have set their affections on. What Alistair Begg is expressing here is that so often when we approach marriage, we're approaching marriage in such a way of what can I get out of it? And when we don't get what we want out of it, then we begin to fight and argue with our spouses because of our selfishness. Men and women alike. So before we step to any other ways to applying this, let's look at the direct way of looking at marriages. Rather than first looking and asking, what do I get out of this? We would stop and be the men that God had called us to be, the spiritual leaders of our homes. Rather than first asking, what do I get out of it? Wives would stop and stop. And step up and be the women that God had called them to be to be a support system rather than the spiritual leaders of their homes. See, the reality is simple here is that when we approach marriage, it should be in a way of what not only can I do for my spouse, but ultimately how can I glorify God in this marriage? That's what Boaz was seeking in this. Is how can God be glorified in the redemption of his people by me? buying and purchasing the land and marrying Ruth so that Elimelech would not be cast away. Our marriages likewise should look the same. There should be a group decision of how to glorify God in the everyday things of our marriages. But what if we begin to approach the dating scene in this way? Rather than looking at physical appearance, what if we begin to seek after the woman or the man of God that would best complement God's calling on your life? What if you set dating aside because it has become your way of seeking after self-worth rather than finding it in Christ? See, the reality is not everyone here is married. And many of you are seeking uh, individuals to date in your life. What if you begin to do that in a way that would glorify God rather than self-satisfy your own desires? But it goes much farther than marriage and relationships. This isn't just a story of a, of a love story, but rather this is a story of Christianity. So what if we approached it in the way that we serve our churches in this manner? What if we approached the way we did our schoolwork or we worked or that we parented? What if we devoted, approached our devotion to the true Redeemer this way? Would we be willing to make steps that we might initially desire, not desire because we know God is calling us more than normality, Christianity? Will we be able to 
truthfully seeing the words, wherever he leads, I go? What if we truly sought after the Lord the way that Boaz is seeking after the redemption of Ruth? The third thing, last thing we're going to look at, is that shadows of true redeemers pursue community. Verse 11, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we're going to pause there before we see what they said. But we understand that the elders were these ten people that Boaz got to sit aside for the moment to, to oversee this legal transaction. But we see that there's other people there as well. That all of the people who were there at the gate. See, remember about this gate. This is where everything went down. This is the, the center of the city life. This is where people went for their gossip. This is where people went to see what was going on in their news, the reality of their circumstances. This is where people went for everything. And so this group of 12 men sitting around talking about the purchasing of land and the redeeming of Ruth and the marriage of Ruth would get people's attention in the town because this is a, a Moabite woman that is being sought after by an individual that is of God. And so these people begin to on look onto the circumstances around them and they're, they're looking and watching and waiting. They're, they're sitting at the edge of their seat wondering what is going to happen, much like we were when we read it. And Boaz is calling them as witnesses to declare what just happened. So we see the response. We are witnesses. May the Lord God make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by the young woman. I don't want to bite off too much of what Caleb's going to approach next week. But what we see is that for 10 years, Ruth was barren. But what we also see in the lineage of Ruth is that there was a king to come to her descendant. And so these people, though they're just casting out this simple blessing or prayer over Ruth and Boaz's marriage, what they're declaring over them is exactly what's going to unfold for their lives. And what we see in this, these three things, I'm just going to sum them up. We could go in length to them. But he's, they're praying that God would provide for them a large family, much like Israel had through Rachel and Leah, that God would cause Ruth to be able to produce children, that, he, that God would cause Boaz to be prosperous in his actions through Ephraim, which is really just probably this wording of the old way of saying Bethlehem, to make his name great in Bethlehem. And then lastly, that would take Naomi and Ruth's tragic story and make it whole as he did for the house of Perez. Perez was... A very interesting story. I really wish I had time to explore it further, but I would encourage you to go look at Judah and Perez. It's this story of God redeeming people, just like he is doing in this moment here. And so these people that are on looking or praying that God would provide for Ruth and Boaz, that he would redeem their circumstances and make them a great name in Bethlehem.
ultimately what we see in these last two verses is that Boaz was not approaching this manner in the secrecy of the night at the threshing floor any longer. Rather, he took care of business in the busiest portion of the city during one of the busiest times of the day. So therefore, there's people on looking, looking in to this, this legal transaction that is being made. Boaz was not only displaying integrity and self-sacrifice, but he was being transparent. He's not only involved other Redeemer and the elders, but also the townspeople are involved in this transaction. The people of God are involved in this transaction that that Boaz is making with Mr. So-and-so and with Naomi. The result of it, though, was that the community of God's peoples witnessed the transaction and bless or pray over God's blessing over their marriage. See, this isn't just a transaction that was made between 12 individuals, but rather this was a transaction that was made with a group of God's people. The reality for us is no different. Shadows of the true Redeemer's believers are to pursue community. The Christian life is no different. Biblical discipleship is no different. Modern biblical marriage Raising children, the difficulties that come with life, none of that is any different. We are called into community rather than isolation. So, rather, God has redeemed us into a covenant family that is to aid us in sanctification, discipleship, marriage, raising children, and life in general. So let us not only aid others in this area of life, but let's allow others to come alongside us. These next two statements I'm going to make to myself first, and I did throughout the week, but I want to make it to you as well. How arrogant must I be to think that I can do life on my own when God has found it fit to place me in such a wonderful and loving church family? How selfish must I be to, that, I, that I would not desire to step into others' lives and to aid them in the spiritual and earthly struggles? See, the reality is God has called you into community and He has placed you in one, so therefore you are to live in it. So not only are you to pursue holiness, not only are you to pursue self-sacrifice, but also to pursue community. The reality, though, is that when we approach a story as lofty as this and a character to Boaz's strengths, we would then quickly realize that so often in my life, I am Mr. So-and-so. I am not Boaz. I'm either unwilling or I'm unable to live up to the expectations of holiness, self-sacrifice, and community. The reality, though, is that we don't look internally for the power to do any of the things that I have called you to do this morning, but rather you look to the true and perfect Redeemer and not only a shadow of Boaz, but the true one that died on the cross that has redeemed and saved us. And we look to His guidance and His direction and His power to lead these things out in our lives. So as Leanne comes and we sing this last song together, You may seem overwhelmed about the calling of holiness and self-sacrifice and community. And rightly, you should be, because you cannot obtain it on your own. But rather, as shadows of the true Redeemer, let's look to the true Redeemer as our strength in these endeavors. Let's pray.
all the roads that lead to you Setting off on a one-way train To a place where they know my head and mind.